three or four, actually, four main factors that can change in order to change our pressure volume loop. We had said, remember, that this would be our end diastolic volume. We can push our end diastolic volume out to the right. We can deliver more blood to the ventricle. And the reason uh, that would cause that could be things like venoconstriction, push more blood back into that ventricle, or pressurize the system entirely, put more volume into the vascular system, actually add more volume to the entire vasculature, and that will pressurize the system and push more blood back towards the heart. So augmentation of venous tone or vascular volume will lead to an increase in preload, and therefore that will result in an increase in stroke volume. In terms of afterload, uh, the normal afterload would be represented by the aortic diastolic pressure, because that's the pressure that we need to get to in order to initiate ejection from the ventricle into the aorta. So if I've got hypertension, that clearly means that my aortic diastolic pressure will be increased, which means that the ventricle will need to get to a higher pressure to open the aortic valve. Now, of course, if that's the case, it means that more of my actin-myosin interactions are taken up in tension production. And therefore, there are less actin-myosin interactions left for actual shortening. So what we find is that we've got a truncation because we meet our end systolic pressure volume relationship all the earlier. And if we've got very high afterload, then we end up truncating even more, and we cross here and we meet our end systolic pressure volume relationship very early. So any increase in afterload is going to cause tall narrow stroke volume. Now, of course, that's far from ideal, because remember, this is very costly. Going from here up to here is 90% of the cost of running the heart. If I ask the heart to provide even more tension, that's going to come with a very severe metabolic cost. And remember, this is happening on every single heartbeat. So the higher you make the afterload, the worse it's going to be for the heart from an energetic point of view. Now, clearly, that means that this is a very good point for you to intervene when you're dealing with a failing heart. How about adding something that reduces afterload, because not only by reducing afterload is it less expensive to get to that low aortic diastolic volume, but you buy back more stroke volume because you can go all the way across to the end systolic pressure volume relationship on the left-hand side. So by reducing afterload, we help our patient a lot. We reintroduce a large stroke volume, and more importantly, it's energetically favorable. We don't have to produce much tension in the wall of the ventricle. So hypertension is going to ramp up afterload. You as a doctor are going to be trying your best to make sure afterload is minimized. The other thing we can do is move the insystolic pressure volume relationship itself. We can make sure that the heart beats all the harder by providing more calcium. And if we provide more calcium, of course, you can see here, as we rotate the ESPVR from 1 up to 2 up to 3, then we buy back more stroke volume. We go to lower and lower end systolic volumes, which means our stroke volume is enhanced. 
So you're also going to use that initiative. You're going to be able to give your patient a positive inotrope to try and augment the ESPVR off to the left. The, 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 the earmark of systolic heart failure is actually in the opposite direction. Systolic heart failure is the continual and gradual progressive loss of inotropy, and the heart is not able to make such firm contractions, and of course, that pushes your pressure volume curve out to the right. The third, fourth thing, which I did not give you a slide for, but we can scribble that out quickly. Please remind me to use the pointer on here. I have a terrible habit of not using it. Um, let's imagine, here's a normal heart. Here's its passive length tension relationship. Here it's ESPVR. This is pressure. This is volume. Let's imagine our central venous pressure is here at 10. That means that the ventricle will continue to fill until the ventricle is at 10 centimeters of water pressure. Because as soon as the ventricle fills up to 10 centimeters of water pressure, there's no driving force for further flow into it. So the ventricle continues to fill until the pressure inside the ventricle matches the central venous pressure. Now there's no driving pressure for ventricular filling. So that would be the end diastolic pressure would be 10, and that would correspond to an end diastolic volume here. We then go into contraction. We go across, we go down, we go back. Now, what about if the heart is highly elastic and stiff? Remember, elastic means stiff. This structure here is far more elastic than an elastic band. We shouldn't call them elastic bands. We should call them compliant bands because they move when we apply a force. Elasticity is the property of not moving when you apply a force. It's a resistance to distension when you apply a force. So our heart, what do we do to the passive length tension relationship if the heart becomes more elastic? Do we rotate it up or do we rotate it down? Up. Increased elastance. Remember, the slope of this line is the elastance. We increase the slope by increasing the elastance. So, let's give our patient diastolic heart failure. Now, we can see here that with this new passive length tension curve, we meet 10 centimeters of water pressure far earlier at a lower volume. That means this ventricle will not fill to the same extent as this supple ventricle. The stiffness of the ventricle terminates filling all the earlier because we've got a rapid rise in pressure even with a low volume. That's because the structure is very stiff. However, it's not quite like that. In practice, what happens, of course, is that that would give us a very narrow stroke volume. Yeah. What happens is that the sympathetic nervous system causes venoconstriction. And venoconstriction is going to do what to central venous pressure? It's going to raise it. So in that circumstance, maybe your central venous pressure goes up to 15. And what we find is that the ventricle fills to this point. So our new pressure volume loop is here. The point is that it's a diagonal movement that we see if we change the elastance of the heart. So that's the kind of translation you're going to see if we change the elasticity of the heart. 
it's going to squeeze the pressure volume loop in gradually to the left up in this diagonal fashion. Okay, you good with that? Nice. So those are the four translations. Let's summarize them. We can move this line out. That's preload. We can move this line up. That's afterload. We can move this point diagonally. That's changing the ESPVR. That's inotropy. We can move this line diagonally, and that is elastance of the heart. That's the only four things you've got to worry about. Okay. We will finish. We'll finish just by taking a look at what might happen during exercise. During exercise, you're going to see an increase in preload. Now, what's going to bring that about? Why are we sending more blood back to the heart? Or how are we sending more blood back to the heart? Venoconstriction, absolutely. So we get venoconstriction by the sympathetic nervous system. And we also get an increase in inotropy. So what you can see here is that we push the pressure volume loop out to the right. And we push the pressure volume loop out to the left. And now we've augmented stroke volume hugely because both ends of the pressure volume loop are moving out. And you can see there, remember, it's the distance between these two vertical lines that give us our stroke volume. So the stroke volume is very augmented during exercise, primarily because of, primarily because of this movement to a greater preload, brought about by venoconstriction, and this movement to a different ESPVR because of the positive inotropy and more calcium. So, ah, it's all in the slides there for you anyhow, yeah? Okay, good. So, I don't see anything relating to clickers here. Do you give them green lights? No, we don't have it. Okay. I think I know what happened. Let's not worry about it. We'll get it on the next lecture. Let's just do it. Somehow, it has to be imported through turn and point. I thought it would open automatically. So the line ABCD is the new problem. The dotted line is the old control value. Yeah, I know. Yeah, As when we when we get to the uh, when we get to the next lecture, we'll see if we can activate that. But let's go through your reasoning here. Aortic insufficiency. Is it going to be aortic insufficiency? Why not? If the aortic valve is insufficient, that means that as the heart goes into what should be isovolumetric relaxation, it fills. So we wouldn't see isovolumetric relaxation, yeah? We would not see a vertical drop because as the heart relaxed, 
blood would automatically be coming straight back into the heart and filling it up. So we would not see isovolumetric relaxation. What about mitral insufficiency? What are we likely to see with mitral insufficiency? There, of course, we would not see isovolumetric contraction because as soon as the ventricle starts to contract, it squirts blood backwards into the atrium. So it's losing volume as it contracts, and there would be no isovolumetric contraction. What about mitral stenosis? What would be the hallmark of mitral stenosis? Remember, mitral stenosis is we cannot get blood from the atrium into the ventricle. Therefore, what's that going to do to the end diastolic volume of the ventricle? It's going to reduce it. Do we have a reduced end diastolic volume? No. So we're left with aortic stenosis. Does that make sense? Well, it does, doesn't it? Because you can see here that the peak systolic pressure evolved inside this ventricle is way above 100, almost close to 200, in fact. That is a hallmark. These high, high peak systolic pressures are because the ventricle is contracting, the blood is finding it difficult to go forward into the aorta, and we generate tremendous pressures inside the ventricle that do not translate into a good forward flow. And what kind of murmur are we going to hear here? It's going to be a systolic, and it's going to be what type of murmur? Crescendo, decrescendo, absolutely. Now, I would also say that this patient's suffering from another problem. It's not just aortic stenosis. What else? Well, that's maybe, maybe not, but what can we tell from that? Look at point C. What's that telling us? They've got high blood pressure, haven't they? You know, with aortic stenosis, normally you have a low diastolic aortic pressure because your forward stroke volume is so poor. Here, this patient's got an elevated diastolic pressure. That probably tells us that the peripheral resistance is very high. Therefore, they've got severe hypertension as well as the aortic stenosis. Okay. So we've already talked about this. What I drew out earlier was diastolic heart failure. Diastolic heart failure is an increased elastance and this diagonal movement, a truncation of the stroke volume loop because we're squeezing it in from the right. Systolic heart failure is the more typical one that we talk about, and that is a drop in the ESPVR. And of course, there's a concomitant push out to the right, and that is an adaptive response because as the ESPVR drops and the stroke volume would narrow, the body responds by renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system becomes active, and we ramp up vascular volume as well as the venous tone. That pushes more blood back to the heart, and we end up with these high end diastolic volumes. And that adaptation is to try and restore the stroke volume. So in the early stages, this is what we call compensated heart failure. The drop in inotropy that we see narrows the pressure volume loop. The body responds by bulking up vascular volume and also squeezing down on the veins to push more blood back to the heart. And it pushes the loop way out to the right, brings our stroke volume back to normal. But of course, the problem with that is that sooner or later, 
the patient's going to start to suffer from the signs and symptoms of volume overload. There's going to be too much vascular volume, and all the signs and symptoms are then going to be related to that high vascular volume. So the sort of things that you're going to do is going to give them diuretics. Try to get their vascular volume back down and try to reduce their afterload so that you can buy them back some stroke volume. Okay, let's try to get this right this time then. We don't need to save that. We're going to move on. The next two lectures uh, are all about bringing what we've done so far together in a kind of holistic story. So let's see how we get on with that. How do we open this damn thing? We've got to go through this pain of a process every time. Folder, contra uh, import, lectures, spring 17, BPM 1, here. Now, forgive me, please. I am going to use the slides a little bit. But I'm also going to do a lot of drawing. And the reason for that is this next step, everything we've learned so far has to be broken apart a little bit and reconstructed. And it's much easier when you can follow me at the sort of pace that I'm talking at now rather than yesterday. So let's take our time and go through this and make sure that we're confident we know what we're talking about. Let's try this for... Okay, this is working now. By the way, what's this graph we're looking at? Is that the ESPVR? No, it's not, is it? That's the Starling curve. Remember, the ESPVR comes from a pressure, a volume pressure relationship. This is actually end diastolic volume against stroke volume. This is a Starling curve. So what we can see here is this is a cardiac performance curve. Our cardiac performance curve got worse. What would make our cardiac performance worse? Well, let's take a look and see what you think. It should be relatively straightforward. Absolutely, a calcium channel blocker. If we reduce calcium release, we reduce inotropy, and by reducing inotropy, we get less forceful contraction and therefore the stroke volume is less for any given preload. So we're going to see a collapse in our cardiac performance curve. Nice. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about guiding cross plots. Guiding cross plots are a fantastic tool. They are a model. They're not a fail-safe model, but they're a model of visualizing what goes on in the cardiovascular system. Because till now, what we've said is, look, if we control right atrial pressure, we can control stroke volume. By increasing right atrial pressure, we increase stroke volume. And Starlin's results are unequivocal in that matter. 
However, uh, we've also got to worry about the fact that if we change stroke volume and cardiac output, we change delivery of blood to the heart, and therefore we change venous return. And so what's driving this system? Is it right atrial pressure that drives cardiac output that drives venous return, or is it venous return that drives right atrial pressure that drives cardiac output? Well, the point is you're never going to resolve that, and it would be stupid to because it's a circular system. And we're not equipped to resolve it yet because Starling's experiment, and there's that word, experiment, he controlled right atrial pressure. That meant there was a value that he was in control of. And what he did was he varied that and looked to see how the heart responded. Well, in a physiological system, there's no one to control right atrial pressure. So we've got to take Starlin's results, and we've got to take what we can from them, but we've got to realize that's not how it works physiologically. So now we've got to figure out how it works physiologically, and that's the point of a guide and cross plot. So let's take a look at what we call cardio, uh, cardiac function curves, or cardiac performance curves. That's the one that we've already looked at, the Starlin curve. And we're going to look at a vascular function curve. What is it that controls venous return? Because only by knowing what controls cardiac output and venous return can we hope to get some sort of idea of how this closed system forms a steady state cardiac output. So let's start thinking about some of the factors here. Let's imagine if we increase blood volume. We've already said this. If increased blood volume, we're going to increase central venous pressure. If we increase central venous pressure, we push more blood back to the heart. We increase venous return. Now we know, because Starlin's law tells us, that if I increase venous return, the heart responds with a harder contraction, and we increase stroke volume. That leads to an increased cardiac output, and of course, it leads to an augmentation of mean arterial pressure. On the other hand, if we lose blood, if we hemorrhage, then we impair CVP, and of course, all of these things go down. We reduce venous return, we reduce stroke volume, we reduce cardiac output, and we suffer from a paucity in mean arterial pressure. It's no coincidence that venomotor tone does the exact same thing. Venoconstriction, just read the top line here, increases CVP, increases VR, increases stroke volume, increases cardiac output, increases mean arterial pressure. Think of it like this. Think of a milk jug. There's two ways of increasing pressure in a milk jug. You can squeeze the milk jug or you can put more volume in it. It's the same thing you're doing either way. You're getting a functional increase in pressure in two different mechanisms. Put more fluid in it or squeeze the structure. It's the same thing here. The blood volume can increase to increase cardiac output or we can squeeze the vessels and push more blood back to the heart and increase central venous pressure to increase cardiac output and mean arterial pressure. And obviously, if we venodilate, that does the opposite. That's a bit like having less volume in the system. What about factors that affect central venous pressure? Actually, you know what? Have we skipped a lecture here? No, it's one. We're good. What about factors that affect venous return from the resistance arterial side? This one is a little more complicated, and we're going to spend a lot more time thinking about it. But let's just take it at face value. Let's just think in a really simple terms. If 
This is the arterial side. And this is the capillaries and veins, and this heads back towards the heart. If I constrict these vessels, am I going to increase venous return or decrease venous return? Absolutely. Pretty straightforward. We will decrease venous return if we vasoconstrict. Likewise, if we vasodilate, there's less resistance, there's more blood flow through into the venous side, and we augment venous return. However, later on you're going to see there are certain parameters that do not change when we change vascular tone. So but just bear in mind, this is a choke point between the arterial and the venous side. You open it up, you get more flow through, more venous return. You close it down, you restrict flow, you get less flow through, you get less venous return. So, we have two different differential effects here. Vasoconstriction slows down venous return, whereas venoconstriction increases venous return. The important thing here is that venoconstriction is not about resistance. It's about squeezing a container and pushing the fluid out of that container. Whereas vascular resistance is all about providing a resistance to flow and is a limitation on getting blood from the arterial side into the venous side. So be very careful and make sure that you're applying these terms because they do the opposite thing. Venoconstriction, increase venous return. Vasoconstriction, decrease venous return. So here we go. What is the primary controller of cardiac output? Is it the heart itself? Or is it that the heart simply responds to what we give it to do? And so that's the million-dollar question that we're trying to answer today. We know already what controls cardiac performance. We've looked at that. Now let's just remind ourselves of what that actually is. Our cardiac performance curve is this. It's our right atrial pressure against our stroke volume. It's our Starling curve. And what we've already done is we've described the type of things that change that curve. Now that comes from that pressure volume loop we talked about. Anything that widens the stroke volume increases your cardiac performance curve. Anything that decreases that pressure volume loop decreases your cardiac performance curve. So what you can see here is augmentation of our cardiac performance is brought about by things like increasing ventricular compliance, decreasing the afterload, or increasing the inotropy. That means we get bigger heartbeats, more forward translocation, and an augmented stroke volume. Whereas, we can rotate our cardiac performance curve down. That's a decreased inotropy, an increased afterload, and a decreased ventricular compliance. So we've already done the factors that control cardiac performance. That is all what we did in the last lecture, and that's just those changes that take place in the preload, in the afterload, in the inotropy, and the compliance. How they change the width of that stroke volume and therefore your cardiac output. So we understand this. This is fine. And what Starlin tells us is that as I increase and control right atrial pressure, I have this pattern of increase in stroke volume. Nothing wrong with that. That's fine. Now, for those of you who are colorblind, it's the red line. 
I thought I'd turned these all pretty and done them properly. Obviously, that one escaped. Okay, so let's take a look, see what you vote for here. Oh, wow, okay, it's a, it's a bit of a guesswork. Okay, 7% of you think increased peripheral resistance. 18% of you think increased contractility. 3 is increased venous tone. 34% of you think that. Increased ventricular compliance. Okay, which one is correct? This one. Let's explain why that is correct. If I increased peripheral resistance, what would I expect to see? I would expect to see, if I increased peripheral resistance, that this point would move up to here and that I would narrow my stroke volume. The afterload would increase if I increased peripheral resistance. It, therefore, is not that one. Increased contractility. I would expect to rotate my end systolic pressure volume relationship out and therefore change the uh, stroke volume. That didn't happen. What about increased ventricular compliance? Remember, this line is the compliance curve or the elastance curve, whichever way you want to look at it, of the ventricles. Did it move? It's true we went to a different place on that curve, but the curve itself did not move. When we talk about a change in ventricular elastance, what we're saying is that the basal mechanical properties of that structure changed. Therefore, we would see a different passive length tension relationship. We do not see a different passive length tension relationship. We just go to a different point on the same passive length tension relationship. So this is not a change in compliance or elastance, this is on the same elastance curve. So it ain't that one. Decreased contractility, well, that would be a drop of the ESPVR down to here. But what would increased venous tone do? Increased venous tone means the smooth muscle tone increases. That means we compress the veins. That means we push more blood back to the heart, and we augment our end diastolic volume. So that one would be correct. Okay. Now let's take a look at this. And I've got some slides for you to draw along with. Because I think all the textbooks kind of show this back to front. And I think it's much easier if we go through it front to back. Uh, that's always just an easier way to think about things. So let me just flip to my Scriblatron and we'll go through what we want to talk about. What we're going to do is we're going to think about what Starlin did very briefly, first of all. We've talked about it a million times, so I don't want to labor the point too much. But the point was, if we control right atrial pressure and increase right atrial pressure, we deliver more blood to the ventricle. And by delivering more blood to the ventricle, we increase end diastolic volume. And by increasing end diastolic volume, we stretch to a more optimal part of our length tension relationship. And we get more optimal 
contact between actin-myosin, and therefore we get a stronger force of contraction. And that results in an increase in stroke volume. And that we understand perfectly by now. I mean, we've talked about that an awful lot. That all, of course, is only true if we're on which phase of the length tension relationship? On the ascending limb. So we have to be in ascendancy for that to be true. That we get. That's easy. Increase right atrial pressure, and we augment all of those things. Decrease right atrial pressure, and we depress all of those things. The point is, we control that, and we see what happens here. That's why right atrial pressure is on our x-axis, and cardiac output and stroke volume are on our y-axis. We always control the thing on the x-axis and look to see what happens to the thing on the y-axis. So we have Starlin to thank for that. Let's now take a completely different approach. Let's draw this little diagram, which represents our heart. This represents our systemic vasculature. This represents our pulmonary vasculature. In fact, we don't even need the pulmonary. Let's just keep it like a frog heart. We're only going to worry about basically coming out of the heart and back to the heart. Let's not worry about the fact there's two hearts in series. But the point is, on this side, it's venous. On this side, it's arterial. And this is where most of the blood is. And we can squeeze on these to deliver more blood back to the heart. But we're going to do something else. What we're going to do is we're going to experimentally control cardiac output. And what we're going to do is we're going to put a little pressure probe in here. We're going to measure right atrial pressure whilst we control cardiac output. So you can see here that this is the exact opposite of what Starling did. He controlled right atrial pressure and looked at cardiac output. We're going to design this system so that we control cardiac output on our x-axis and we try to figure out what that will do to the right atrial pressure. So we're coming at it from the diametrically opposed position of Starling. The first and easiest place to start is at this point here, where the pump is stopped. Now, if the pump is stopped, what pressure will I record here just prior to the pump in the right atrium? Am I going to record any pressure? Well, what about the weight of the blood pushing on the vessel walls? Because this is a system that's full of blood. Okay? So let's account for that. Let's say it's up here at about 7 millimeters of mercury. And that is purely that we have blood pushing against the container walls. The blood ain't moving, it's just quite static, but it does exert a force on the container walls. Well, there's a special name for that. That's called the mean systemic filling pressure. And that's the pressure you would record if the heart ever stops. It would simply be the weight of the blood providing a force against the vessel walls. So in a dead patient, you could record the mean systemic filling pressure. And we give it that name, of course, which is mean systemic filling pressure. Now, we're going to come back to that 
and see how we can change the mean systemic film pressure and what factors control it. But in the meantime, let's just leave it as is. But what I am going to do is I'm going to slowly start this pump. So this is a mechanical pump. I'm going to turn my variable resistor. I'm going to increase the current to my electric pump, and that pump is going to slowly start turning over. So as that pump removes fluid from here and translocates it to here, what's going to happen to the pressure in that space? It's going to decrease, absolutely. So very low pump rates, we're going to see a slight drop in pressure. Now I'm going to take the variable resistor, and I'm going to turn it some more, and I'm going to increase the pump rate a little bit further. Well, lo and behold, what is that going to do to pressure? It's going to decrease a little bit further. Well, I know you guys are smart, so the pattern will continue, and we're going to get this sort of relationship. Is that as I drive the pump faster, and more fluid is removed from the right atrial space, the right atrial pressure drops. Now, at some point, the right atrial pressure will go to zero because the pump is working so fast. Now, what will happen when the right atrial pressure is zero, especially considering the pressure around that structure is not at zero, it's probably higher than zero? What's going to happen, of course, is that the right atrium is going to get compressed. Now, if I drive the pump even faster, so that the right atrial pressure becomes negative, what's going to happen, of course, is that the right atrium sucks in on itself. It compresses. Therefore, we reach a natural limit to how much flow through can occur because we form what's called a Starling resistor. Essentially, what happens is that the pump is pumping so fast and the pressure gets so low in here that it sucks the walls of the container in and it forms a resistance and now flow cannot go any faster. So what would happen is that we'd reach a natural ceiling to how fast we can go the pump. I can continue to make the pump go faster, but it will not continue to provide any faster flow. That flow is now going to be limited. Makes perfect sense, yeah? We drive the pump, and the consequence is a drop in the right atrial pressure. So let's move to the next step. Let's minimize this a little and maximize the graph. We're going to draw that line on from 7 down, and then we hit this point here. What we're now going to do is we're going to change things up a little. We're going to repeat the whole experiment, but this time we're going to change some of the factors. What factor do you want to change? Do you want to add more blood to the system, or do you want to increase venous tone? Venous tone, okay. Right. Imagine that milk carton again. What happens to the pressure in the milk carton if I squeeze the milk carton? It goes up. Yeah? If I squeeze on the milk carton, the pressure inside it goes up. Therefore, if I squeeze the container walls of the venous system, what happens to the mean systemic filling pressure? It goes up. There we go. It goes to a higher baseline. So squeezing on the veins increases the pressure inside the venous system, 
and it raises our mean systemic filling pressure. Now, what else could we do to do the exact same thing? Instead of squeezing the veins, we could put more blood in there. It would be the exact same consequence. We can either pressurize the system by introducing more volume, or we can pressurize the system by squeezing down on the, on the veins. Either way, it's going to result in an increase in the mean systemic filling pressure. Now what we're going to do is we're going to start the pump again. So we're going to start the pump and see what happens to right atrial pressure. Well, it's not complicated. All that happens, of course, is that as the pump goes, pressure falls, pressure falls, pressure falls, pressure falls, pressure falls. It does the exact same thing. And it does so in the exact same ratiometric way. What we find is that we bleed off the pressure as we turn the pump faster. The only difference now, though, is that we can sustain a higher pump rate before we lower the pressure enough to cause collapse of the right atrium. And so it's when we get to this point that the pressure is now low enough in the right atrium for it to suck in on itself and form that Starling resistor, and now flow stops. So all that happens here is that this is an increased venous tone or an increased vascular volume. Exact same thing happens. Now, it should be no surprise, and you can make the leap here, is that if I decrease the vascular tone or if I decrease the vascular volume, then I will decrease the mean systemic filling pressure and therefore, I will meet the low pressure at a far earlier stage. So if I were to lower the mean systemic filling pressure and repeat the experiment, that is going to happen. So you can see here that we would get this movement to the left. Now, that's a vascular function. There's only one more thing we have to look at in our vascular function curve. So let's, before we do the magic, take one look at the other thing that can happen to our vascular function curve. Bear that in mind. I'll draw a little one up here just to orientate us. Let's imagine here's our mean systemic filling pressure. Here's our right atrial pressure. Pump is stopped. This is the natural position right here. What's going to happen now if we keep the volume the same, if we keep the venous tone the same, but now I change the vascular tone, if I change the arteriolar side? So the first thing to think about is what would happen to the mean systemic filling pressure if I cause contraction of the resistance vessels. Now, let, before you answer, before you answer, let me say, let's imagine I've got a hose pipe that goes all the way around this room, comes here. Vasoconstriction is the equivalent of me standing on it at this one point. What is that going to do to the pressure in the entire hose? Not a lot. Not a lot. We're pinching off one very little small section of cross-section in this entire 
big loop that goes round the room. Therefore, if I were to pinch the hose down here, I'm pretty damn sure if you were holding the hose up there, you wouldn't feel a pressure pulse go around that space. So it doesn't change it because it doesn't have a big effect on the total cross-sectional area. Remember, the resistance vessels are one very short piece of the entire vasculature. And so when we vasoconstrict them, we don't actually cause a wholesale increase in pressure. Not when there's no flow in the system. What you might be thinking of is, yes, if the heart is pumping into the arterioles and the arterioles constrict, we develop pressure. But that's an entirely different thing. I'm talking about when there's no pump activity and we've got this big, long pump around the room. It's just sitting there static in the pipe and then I pinch the hose. It is not going to change the pressure in that entire hose. And that's what we see here. Remember, there's no pump activity. We're at zero. We get vasoconstriction we don't see a change in the mean systemic filling pressure. However, what did we say at the start of the lecture? If I vasoconstrict, what happens to venous return? It's going to decrease. Now, that means, of course, a leftward shift. Because remember, although I label this cardiac output, cardiac output and venous return are one and the same thing. Cardiac output is simply the flow through any section of our circular system. So we just tend to call venous return, venous return when it's in the veins, and cardiac output when it's in the arteries, but it's the same flow happening in the circular system. So we find that there's this push to the left. The mean systemic filling pressure doesn't change, but we can sustain less cardiac output because there's less venous return. Now, on the other hand, if we vasodilate, what happens? If we vasodilate, again, it doesn't change the mean systemic filling pressure, but it does allow us to go to higher cardiac outputs or higher venous return, whichever way you want to look at it. So what you can see here is that it actually changes the gradient of that line. So this is opening up of veins and this uh, opening up of the vascular system and this is vasoconstriction. So vasoconstriction and vasodilation. Now, the key to this and to understand how we even start to think of the cardiovascular system as a whole is now starting to kind of come into focus. We know what controls cardiac output and cardiac performance. It's things like afterload. It's things like inotropy. It's things like preload, and it's things like ventricular compliance. We know now what controls venous return. It's things like peripheral resistance. It's things like blood volume, and it's things like venous tone. We now have all the players in the room, and all we've got to do is get them to sing together. Now, how do we do that? Well, here's the magic of why I do it like this. I'm going to flip that around. Oh, it's that damn paper with a... When you flip that around, you should see through that we now have right atrial pressure on the x-axis and cardiac output on the y-axis. So let me draw it for you. If this is now cardiac output and right atrial pressure, what we have 
is that. And that's exactly what you've got in your slide packet. All we've now got to do is reconcile two experimental situations. The experimental situation where we control right atrial pressure and look at cardiac output, and the experimental situation where we control cardiac output and look at right atrial pressure. Now let's flip back to the slides and make sure we follow the logic before that before we bring the two together. So, here is our mean systemic filling pressure. It's at about 7 millimeters of mercury. And that's when we've got zero pump activity. Okay? 7 millimeters of mercury corresponds with zero pump activity. As I increase the pump activity, you can see here that the pressure drops to 6 millimeters of mercury. When we go up to 4 liters, it's to 3 millimeters of mercury. By the time we get up to 7 to 8 liters per minute pump activity, the right atrial pressure has dropped to zero. The right atrium sucks in on itself and flow terminates at that ceiling. So, exactly the same as we drew out, it's just that the axes are now flipped. Right, here's what we talked about. If I increase vascular volume, I increase the mean systemic filling pressure. If I decrease vascular volume, I decrease the mean systemic filling pressure. If I increase venous tone, I increase the mean systemic filling pressure. And if I decrease venous tone, I decrease the mean systemic filling pressure. The exact same things we talked about. All that's happened is that we flipped the axis round. Now the point is, why did we flip the axis round? Well, because the experimental data is all well and good, but we need to figure out what is it that controls cardiac output. Is it that the venous return controls cardiac output, or is it that the cardiac output controls venous return? And there's only one way to do that, which is to try and think of these two experimental situations and try to reconcile both of those events. Now let's take a break for 10 minutes, and then we'll see if we can bring those two together. Good. <laughs> 